This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor Frank Pasquale from the University of Maryland about the self-sovereignty of digital platforms and the risks that it poses for economies and societies. What's nice about coming from an oppositional perspective is every day that Google, Amazon, Facebook, etc. are so powerful is a day invalidating the theory that it's all contestable and it's all going to be upset by two guys in a garage in Palo Alto someday. Every day it's unraveling this myth of contestability and platform competition and platforms perfecting markets. So that's where I feel very optimistic. Here's Karan Beaton-Wells. Here's a couple of firsts. It's the first birthday of the Competition Law podcast and the first episode recorded before a live audience. We recorded the episode at Melbourne Law School on a wintry morning down under in late July, while Frank Pascal was visiting us for a conference on digital citizens. Over coffee and muffins, Frank and I together with a large group of podcast junkies, or perhaps Frank junkies, chewed through the various grounds on which Frank takes issue with the platformization of our societies. To begin with, I wanted to know his take on the recent announcement of a $5 billion fine by the FTC against Facebook and the fact that it prompted a rise in the social media giant's share price. Well, I think it really is an indication of the enormous power of digital platforms and the enormous resources that they bring to bear against virtually any lawsuit or government regulatory authority. I think what it also shows is a history of failure by the FTC to rein things in. This whole Cambridge Analytica scandal, I believe, came out of inadequate enforcement of a 2011 consent decree that was supposed to essentially ensure that Facebook did not abuse its position relative to consumers in terms of how they spread their data, etc. I think that what people were hoping for would be that people like Commissioner Chopra, other intellectual leaders at the Federal Trade Commission would impose some sort of structural remedy or further remedies on the collection analysis and use in data. But instead, what we come out with was essentially a commodification of wrongdoing such that the message is, hey, break the law if you've got enough money to pay for it. There's a price tag. And we know that just last quarter, the revenue of Facebook was $15 billion, So it's fair <laughs> enough for some commentators to have responded by saying this was a mere slap on the wrist. Of course, at the heart of everything we're talking about here is power, immense power, not just market power, but social and political power. And your concerns about that power range from the degradation of our privacy, the effects on our reputations, and you see privacy and reputation as linked, the precariousness of work in the gig economy, the collapse of the fourth pillar of our democracies in the traditional media, and even corruption of the political process. So there's a wide span there. But there seem to me to be perhaps two fundamental themes in much of your writing about these issues. And the one is the black box dissertation that comes from your book. So open the black box for us. Tell us, what is your concern there? 
Sure. So this comes out of this book, The Black Box Society, and that book in turn came out of about a decade of wrestling with the problem of trade secrecy in the digital world. And a lot of times the problem would be that you would have people who wanted to challenge, say, Google, Facebook, other platforms for commercial harm that they had experienced, but they would run into the brick wall of trade secrecy. And so that trade secrecy is a problem. But then I tried to develop in the book three types of secrecy, which include not just legal efforts to protect and to keep under wraps what firms are doing, and often what governments are doing too. We've got both trade secrets and state secrets. But also, technical complexity can make it almost impossible to understand what's going on, quote-unquote, underneath the hood at some of these firms. And efforts at obfuscation, just trying to hide what's going on. Because when things become so complex, it becomes easier and easier to hide. And so that's where I was going with that. But I think the other thing about the black box that I think is really critical is it raises fundamental questions about economic models of bargaining. Because how are we to really bargain rationally about the use of our data if we have no idea about the full scope and extent of the data collection, analysis, and use? And one of your past guests, Catherine Kemp, has written very convincingly about how this unravels many of the dominant economic paradigms and in turn invites competition authorities and all the rest of us to bring in a lot more social science. So we're not just looking at things from an economic perspective, but we're bringing in other social scientific perspectives. Speaking of bargaining as between platforms and their users, whether they be us as consumers or businesses that are economically dependent on them. What about the bargain here between these immensely powerful private entities and the state? You talked about the FTC and where you see its failings in that area. Is there a really serious asymmetric bargaining power situation as between the corporate digital world and the state now that we should be worried about? Absolutely, yeah. I would just start, though, by saying that I think the original sin of the online world is modeling the relationship between the user and the platform as one of contract in terms of service. Really, in effect, we stand vis-a-vis -vis them as we do via government agencies. We have as much or even less opportunity to change many of their policies as we do of a government agency. And that, in turn, leads to the main point of your question in terms of well, just how powerful they become. They clearly are much more powerful than the users. What about with respect to government? And there, I think it's really relevant what type of resources they can bring to bear to cases. There's just enormous documentation of agencies, at least in the US, and I think elsewhere, that just do not have the resources necessary to be involved in a multi-year court struggle over some of these issues. And that, I think, is why, for example, you saw the settlements in the Facebook case, right? Mm. They faced either grabbing the $5 billion or potentially having years and years of litigation before in the U.S. an increasingly hostile judiciary, a judiciary increasingly packed with people entirely slanted toward corporate interests. Why would you do that? I remember an anecdote regarding the SEC, but I think it's also relevant here, where they talked about the lawyers for a large Wall Street firm. They had 10 or 12 of the best lawyers possible being paid $700 to $1,000 an hour, going up against people from the U.S. who couldn't even have their agency pay for a hotel room, and they wouldn't pay for Amtrak, so they had to take a bus from Washington to New York, which, if you've ever taken, is a very bumpy ride. The visceral materiality of this cannot be overstated enough in terms of the massive imbalance of resources. You know, maybe they have one or two technologists looking at an online digital world where there are literally thousands of apps. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that just as we had the dedication of funding of 3 to 5% to study the ethical, legal, and scientific implications of the Human Genome Project, we should be 
massively upping the amount of resources that we give to state actors just to understand what's going on, much less to police on behalf of consumers and the public interest. So there's evidently an asymmetry or an imbalance, as you put it, not just in resources, but in expertise and capacity to understand what's going on in the black box, because you can't regulate, of course, what you don't understand to begin with. You have said that Google, and I'm sure you would apply this to the other three as well, have become de facto lawmakers for virtually every aspect of what goes on in the internet nowadays. Have we effectively delegated control or outsourced control over a mechanism, a space that is so important to everything in our lives and economies to the private sector? I think that is a terrific articulation of the stakes. And I think that what's going on is, I did a talk for the German Social Democratic Party on the future of digital regulation, where I tried to develop an idea of functional sovereignty. The idea is that, you know, we have state territorial sovereignty over an area where you might have the city council setting up rules about how many nights can someone stay in a private home and pay for that without paying tax, or what are the regulations on that, what are the regulations on other forms of business, et cetera. And I think what's the aspiration of many of these firms is that the firms can only become profitable to the extent that they essentially assume a sovereign power. That's what is built into the business model. So this is the problem that one of your other past guests, Matt Stoller, has called one of absentee ownership. The firm, Google, has become so powerful over so many parts of the digital sphere, but it isn't investing the resources in order to govern that well. And that's where I move from a diagnosis of the functional sovereignty of firms over different slices of our digital life to one of a critique of absentee ownership or a critique of a failure of governance that results when you have someone that basically only sees the digital world as an opportunity to get profits, but not as a place of obligation where you're actually acting on behalf of and protecting consumer interests. And how do we understand what underlies or explains that worldview on the part of these gigantic firms is there a cultural frame of reference that's useful to understand here? There's been many books, I know you'll be aware, written about so-called Silicon Valley culture. But you've got an interesting take on this, and particularly the intersection between that cultural dimension and regulation. Yes, I think there's a really important dimension here. And I think there is both a very popular way in which we can understand it, given stories like John Carrier's recent book on Theranos, Bad Blood, to other stories about how Uber would rally its consumers to oppose any regulation of their services. So that's sort of our popular understanding. But I also think there's a very deep clash of professions and clash of worldviews at stake, such that in many of the Silicon Valley firms, what is seen as fundamentally real is coding, computer science, and the algorithmic. That's seen as real. The rest, law, regulation, public policy, ethics, sort of seen as, yeah, yeah, that's the soft stuff that people are doing until we reach the singularity. <laughs> and I think that the issue there is really important because it reminds me of, I think James Watson had a quote attributed to him where he said, the real science is physics, all the rest is social work. And I think that for many of these firms, the real activity is coding, all the rest is seen as something that is fundamentally subordinate and meant to support the people coding. Again, with a wonderful financial analogy to if you have people in compliance in a financial firm making $50,000 a year and traders making $1 to $5 million a year, who has power in the firm? 
it's pretty clear. So you can tell what's valued and what's not by pay scales, by, for example, content moderators making $12 to $13 an hour being instantly fireable and not having benefits, other things like that. And I think that is deeply embedded in the Silicon Valley culture, and it's something that really requires a total rethink in terms of the scope and intensity of regulation that we want to take on. But can we go even deeper than that? Do they extol coding or engineering as a way of genuinely intending to do good, believing that they know what is good for all of us, and or is it a more strategic, almost devious mindset, which is about let's get so many consumers hooked, addicted on our services, such that when the regulators finally wake up and realise there might be a role for them here, it's too late because the consumers have been won over. Well, here I'm going to back into a more conciliatory model or this frame of generous. mind. <laughs> uh, based on this piece I did a few years ago called Two Narratives of Platform Capitalism. Because I feel like actually either model of reality is plausible. And I think on the one hand, there is a justified concern among a lot of the leaders of these firms about the incredible ossification and lack of professionalism and lack of resources among regulators. You can't gainsay the incredible value that they've generated for so many people. And so I think when you've created that much value in the realm of people's ability to map the web, to get fast, rapid transport, Apple, Amazon, give tons of examples, you then might project from those successes the need to restructure the rest of society according to how well you've done in those other fields. However, the problem is that now as they're moving into fields like healthcare and education, that I think is what's particularly problematic to me because those are highly regulated fields where we have regulation for a reason. You can't only tell the public choice story of an entirely captured regulatory board, just zombie-like keeping useless rules on the books. There are many reasons for these rules and we have to be very suspicious when capitalists or philanthro-capitalists presume to step in to fundamentally restructure social relations in order to make them more efficient. Because often their notion of what is efficient is widely divergent from other interest groups or stakeholders' ideas of public values. You mentioned healthcare and education, but what about financial services? We see uh, Facebook, <laughs> with its move to introduce a global cryptocurrency, seems to me to rather vividly exemplify this shoot first, ask questions later uh, <laughs> mindset or approach that you've described on the part of Uber and some of the other protagonists in this area. Does that suggest that perhaps Facebook hasn't learnt and there is a cultural block here stopping it from being a genuine partner with government in devising a set of regulatory rules that will benefit us all? Yes, I think that the cultural block idea is a really fascinating one. I was really impressed by the fact that Sherrod Brown, in part of his statement when the Libra thing was brought up to his committee, he's the ranking member on the relevant Senate committee, was he said Facebook reminded him of the toddler who has continually burned down houses with a pack of matches and who calls every arson a new learning opportunity. <laughs> I mean, and that's a really strong language, right? And I think that's where, beyond even the idea of a suspicion of a persistent cultural block at Facebook, there's just the thought that, well, if you've messed up in so many ways, so grievously, with respect to some of the breaches, and we could give a whole litany of problems, there's a whole Wired article about Facebook's horrible year, 
we don't want to work with you anymore. We want you to go back to where you started from and fix what you already are in control of rather than making a gamble for some other larger slice of our attention, as John Newman puts it, or of our life. But I think that the pressure for Facebook clearly is from WeChat. I mean, clearly they're feeling, wow, if we don't do this, WeChat will do it. And that's one where we have to continually think about the global dimensions of this policy. I think some people say, oh, that's just patriotism is the last refuge of scoundrels, and that's not a good argument. I think it actually is something we have to think very deeply about when we think about how antitrust policy has to balance many, many concerns, not just uh, crudely economic ones. Okay, so you bring up antitrust. We better talk about that, at least uh, briefly. Some in the antitrust world tell us we should all take a back and lie down about this because consumers will be protected by virtue of the fact that these firms compete head-to-head fiercely against each other in the multiple market spaces that they occupy and that they will increasingly if in fact are not already, competing on the values that we're most concerned about. And privacy is the obvious example. So we've seen Apple and Facebook having a bit of a -a tete-a-tete. Who's the superior privacy model? Google's weighing in on privacy as well. This is giant versus giant competition. Isn't that going to be enough to deal with the matters we're concerned about? You know, there are some areas where there appears to have been very vigorous competition. For example, I mean, Google invested a lot in Google+. They tried to get into the social network space. There are other examples where they seem to be fighting very hard. But I think what we need also is a more sophisticated theory of the overall competitive dynamics, which was foreshadowed in the Arizona Nail Buff book, Co-Opetition. So all the time when there is competition, there's also cooperation. So you have Google paying Apple a ton of money to be the default search engine on the iPhone. You also have other forms of even more sophisticated models, such as in the Azrahi and Stuki work, uh, virtual competition, where they compare these firms to like lions that are surrounding gazelles. And then sometimes they fight for the same gazelle, or sometimes they sort of round them all up and they all predate slowly. That may seem like a rather forced or strange analogy, but you know, the more you look at the work of like MIT's Andrew Lowe and his evolutionary markets work, where he applies biological theories of complex adaptive systems to the economy, the more plausible that appears, right? And the more that these ideas really need to get a hearing. The last point I guess I would make to bring us back to more traditional antitrust reasoning is in the US, we have giant private insurers. The neoliberal model of market competition there is that big insurers will act on behalf of their members to drive down the costs of providers of doctors and hospitals. And so many times the insurers will say to antitrust authorities, let us get really big because then we'll be big enough to bargain with the already consolidated hospital sector. That's sort of the model. The problem is really the practical impact of that in the markets where it's occurred in the U.S. has been the little people, the patients and consumers being stomped on. So there's not enough empirical evidence that that is really working. You you have a real problem there, I think, with respect to both the theoretical framing and the empirical results of that type of Clash of the Titans competitive model. There's no question that there's an active debate going on in the U.S. now about levels of concentration just across the economy, the digital platforms are held up as the poster child for that. But as you said, it's in healthcare, it's in transport, it's in telecoms. It really is pervasive. And what we've seen is this emergence of a divide in the antitrust community about, first of all, whether this is a problem as such, and secondly, if so, how to respond to it. Now, you wrote a wonderful piece that tries to 
capture and, in fact, reconcile this division of opinion. And you suggested we might need to go back to the 1770s to understand it. <laughs> For those of us who are not students of American history, you better start by telling us who are Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Yes, so <laughs> this was a piece for a journal called American Affairs, and it was comparing a Hamiltonian and a Jeffersonian model of the economy. So Jefferson had this idea that we really needed an economy that was distributed, that had lots of small farmers, small manufacturers, artisanal suppliers, all being protected. Hamilton, by contrast, said, look, this is a rough and tumble world. We need to have the biggest toughest firms. We need to invest in very large firms and have government working with them. And that also has a certain legacy to this day in the work of like John Kenneth Galbraith and his model of countervailing power, models of peak organizations, of just having you know, lots of investment in very big firms that can be more efficient. And so what I tried to do in this article was called the knowledge problem in tech platforms. It was what really is the animating model behind different policymakers when they think about antitrust? Do they think that really we don't want to kill the goose that laid the golden eggs? We want to protect bigness because it delivers efficiency to us? Or is it more of a model that we need to break up these firms? So, for example, the model out of something like Diaspora or Mastodon when social networking would be, maybe there should be a thousand or a million little social networks that we all have some principle of interactivity, but there should never be one giant social network that has complete control over all of those, things like that. And so I think that this question, this conflict is really fundamental in terms of what your ultimate model for a good economy is. And so more of my cards on the table. I'm very attracted to the Jeffersonian model. I think that would be really ideal. But on the other hand, there are lots of conveniences of modern life and there are lots of aspects of global competition that really require something like a Hamiltonian investment in what Roberto Unger calls the leading modes of production, the most advanced modes of production. If you look at the work of Evgeny Muratsov and Roberto Unger, they are sort of arguing, I think, from a left perspective mainly, that you need to really invest in bigness. I don't know. There, ostensibly, there's a right perspective on smallness, but in practice, I don't see it really happening that effectively in terms of the policy coming out of the right on antitrust or competition law. Well, so how do these two opposing economic, if not political, visions for an economy relate to the debate we're having about the objectives and the proper scope of antitrust? Is it correct to say that the Jeffersonian model is one that captures the original intent of the lawmakers bringing in the Sherman Act in the US and that that was an intent that's been overtaken by a law and economics movement later on. How do we tie the current debate to those two broader visions? Yes, excellent question. I think that there is a very good argument, I think, looking at the people that have closely examined the legislative history of the Sherman Act in the US, which is our guiding competition law, that Jeffersonian model was exactly what was in the back of the minds of the people that were drafting these laws. I think looking at it from a perspective of intellectual history, you also see some resonances with the German order liberal approach, which would demand having certain structures in the economy to ensure that competition exists or can persist for some time which is contrasted with the more Chicago school neoliberalism, which is aggregative and into consumer welfare, which would say, we don't care if their firm is a giant monopoly, as long as it's attained its monopoly through legitimate means, and it is conducing to overall higher levels of consumer welfare and happiness, et cetera, we want to approve it. And that's commonly known as we care about competition, not competitors. The problem, of course, with that perspective is how do we know if there's competition if there's no competitors? 
That's a really difficult thing to know. Both sides have very deep problems that need to be solved, but I don't want to leave everyone with just a sense of, well, you plump for one or the other. I think now things have gotten so bad and they're so concentrated that there's a clear need for breaking up certain of the largest firms, and that would be taken on a Jeffersonian mindset, but you would then simultaneously need to, in sequence, you'd need to have a lot of effective regulation to ensure that they just don't coalesce again. So you're part Jeffersonian, part Hamiltonian, you've got yes. a finger in each pie, <laughs> break them up to begin with, but then regulate. Why would we not, having done a structural separation, allow competition to do the regulating? Why would we allow government to get into some sort of micromanagement of free markets? The response there would be, and this would come out of my experience in the School of Law and Political Economy. So we've been doing a lot of work over the past few years in law and political economy, where we really are trying to focus on the idea that government is always already deeply structuring markets. So, for example, with respect to how will competition occur, one example I go back to is when Ma Bell was broken up into the baby bells in the U.S. All this effort to break apart into 12 or 13 regional telephone companies, but because of a failure to really ensure competition among them, gradually they all reconsolidated, right? There's a whole book called Contrived Competition about that. I think simultaneously, when you look at, for example, rules of interoperability and data transfer, privacy, intellectual property, et cetera, so many of those are affected by the government and they set fundamental terms of competition so that it's not as if the government, by regulating, trying to stop further coalescence or recoalescence, is stepping in and ordering what was a spontaneous space. It's always already being deeply regulated. And it's amazing to me how deeply intertwined laws of contract, antitrust, data standardization methods, etc., all of those are already so deeply structuring how competition occurs. So we always have government intervention. It's just a question of, can it speak with one voice? And right now, unfortunately, often it's quite chaotic. There's different agencies doing different things, acting across purposes. But I do think that would be one very good overarching goal if Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram were split up, trying to ensure that via various government entities, that type of division would persist over time. Yeah. But isn't it just perhaps optimistic to think of regulators acting in their own networked way collectively, taking a holistic approach, which is what you call for, when we see just in the antitrust area almost a competitive arms race going on between the DOJ and FTC, whether it's about who's going to hold the best review or who's going to investigate which of these companies, or perhaps there's competition going on between them, the way they're dividing up <laughs> yes. their targets. I mean, what's going on there with those two agencies? Because it's an institutional framework that's not really replicable or doesn't really have a parallel anywhere else in the world. It is something where I think the U.S. is very good at having multiple overlapping jurisdictional claims between not just FTC and DOJ, but also at the state level. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have a lot of complexity there. International cooperation is something that seems increasingly necessary, but also I will confess that it is somewhat in tension with my ideal of having more values at play in antitrust, right? You could say that one of the successes of a purely neoliberal plus aggregated consumer welfare framework would be to create a common language of enforcement internationally. That would be seen as one of its great successes. But I also think given the bigness that's been allowed thanks to that framework, we now can probably foresee international convergence or harmony 
on the idea that some of the firms have just simply gotten too big. Mm. So at least I hope to see something like that. So you're a hardcore statist, you just told me, <laughs> with pride yesterday, and you're also clearly a structuralist. Where would you start? What would be the priority for regulating this area? Because there's clearly lots of categories or areas of concern, lots of values at play, as you say. Where would you vest the state's resources in terms of priorities? Or do you think we can do it all at once? You know, I recently did a review of Tim Wu's book, The Curse of Bigness. And what I particularly love about Tim Wu's work is that he can find a way to translate some of the very technical, arcane language of both the law and the social science of antitrust into a really accessible mode. And the first thing I would do here, and I appreciate your podcast too for pressing your guests to do that as well, and I think that's a very good thing to start with in terms of just making it a broad public priority. But looking at some of his ideas and some ideas that have been put forward by the Open Markets Institute, having relatively simple, clear rules about mergers, being very, very dubious of a merger that goes from four to three, three to two in certain key areas. And I also think a lot of times I've done these conferences at Chicago and other conferences where the two-step that seems to often be played is I so often hear, well, you don't want antitrust, you want regulation. Then I propose a regulatory regime and they say, well, haven't you heard about the failures of the Civil Aeronautics Board in the 70s? I mean, you seem so naive about the powers of regulation. <laughs> so there's a certain way in which I sometimes feel gaslit. And so I go in exactly the opposite direction and saying, rather than forcing a choice, or rather than forcing a choice that eventually becomes one of both are bad, I think both are good. And I think that, for example, the model with insurers is something that inspires a lot of what I do in the black box book. So private insurance regulation in the U.S. at least, we recognize that these intermediaries between patients and healthcare providers have enormous power and we limit the amount of profit they can make off of that power. And I think something very similar is going to be ideally in the works for a lot of these platforms because they have such power. You see exactly that concern with the fight against Apple or Google taking some high percentage of the revenue between the consumer and the purchaser of apps. And so this is something that we have a very technical term, the medical loss ratio in U.S. healthcare law that says only 15 to 20% can go to administrative and profits, costs and profits for the insurers. I think something like that, some sort of uh, tariff regulation. regulation. Yes. Yes, oh, will be okay. necessary in the future because... How do you get into antitrust conferences in the U.S., right? They must <laughs> buy you at the door. No, I've been cursed by a leading figure. My favorite story about this is 10 years ago, I gave a faculty talk. Uh, he threw down my paper on the table and said, this is a paper called Internet Non-Discrimination Principles, published in the University of Chicago Legal Forum. Threw it down and said, this is not scholarship. In 10 years, nobody will have heard of Google or Facebook. It's all dynamic. It's all changing all the time. Imagine if you wrote this when Yahoo was dominant, etc. The amount of invective is amazing. And I think that invective and the passion of much of the establishment in rejecting oppositional or non-traditional voices is itself not a reflection of strength but of weakness. That's what I think is so important. I think particularly for younger scholars here, if people are trying to block out your points of view, sometimes realize that the passion that can sometimes come with the rejection of new ideas is really a reflection of the weakness of the status quo in the establishment, not of its strength. Finally, now we have someone like Lena Khan taking a position at one of the best law schools in America. And she's copped a share of flack. Yeah. What's nice about coming from an oppositional perspective is every day that Google, Amazon, Facebook, etc. are so powerful is a day invalidating the theory that it's all contestable and it's all going to be upset by two guys in a garage in Palo Alto someday.
every day it's unraveling this myth of contestability and platform competition and platforms perfecting markets. So that's where I feel very optimistic. Wow. There's a strong call for action there, Frank. Break them up, regulate them on virtually every front possible. What will the future look like if we don't heed that call to action and let the days continue to pass and the power continue to grow? I mean, I could give you some scenario analysis here, but actually, given that many people may have a long flight home, et cetera, I want to recommend uh, science fiction. And I think there's a wonderful novel by M.T. Anderson called Feed, where he describes a future where there are just a few very dominant firms that have a direct neural interface, quite relevant given Elon Musk's plans. And he really imagines what types of subjectivities would be cultivated by these dominant firms. And I think what's terrifying about that future is that you really could have so much power, not just over who makes tables or who makes our cups or who makes what have you, but who is influencing our mind. So I think that this is a area where we really have to be very careful about allowing not just the economic consequences, but the power of such firms. I mean, at least the French, and I know the U.S. defense departments, have hired science fiction writers as scenario analysts for the far future. And I think we should think deeply about that. We should think deeply about what type of world are we tending toward if we allow these sort of trends toward consolidation to go unchecked. Engineers in our brains, that is a dystopian vision. <laughs> yes. Let's hand over to our audience sure. now, Frank. I know there's many here who would like to ask you their own questions, not let me dominate proceedings. Hi, my name is Jean. I'm from University of Sydney. I really love your talk, very inspiring. So my question actually is about the U.S. law, the very famous, the Decency Communication Act, Section 230. You know, this law has really help Google and Facebook, they become bigger and bigger because they provide the internet immunities to those internet intermediaries. But the issue is if you move out of the United States, for example, in Australia or even in European Union, there are stronger demand that there should be more regulations on internet intermediaries. But the consequence may be essentially it will increase the entry level, the threshold to the market. Oh, thank you. A really thought-provoking question and a, a very deep problem. And so I have an easy way out, and then I have a more thoughtful response. So my easy way out would be to say that we can target regulation by size of platform, by user base, or revenue. I think that you're right to say it could be if you have it universally, then you sort of create this big barrier to entry, and certainly that's been part of the discourse about GDPR as well. Failing that, one of the reasons I wrote the Hamiltonian Jeffersonian piece is because I really do have a foot in both camps. I really do think there may be certain real deep efficiencies of a very large platform that cannot be matched by very small ones. But you've got to also balance that against the damage that could be done by the very small platforms would be less. Just thinking about the Christchurch shooting and you know how rapidly that spread and how on the one hand, there are people who are criticizing Facebook for not acting fast enough, but on the other hand, it certainly had a lot more infrastructure to recognize via AI what was the offensive footage versus what I imagine some very small social network would have. So I think that that's an area where that's a very difficult balance, but in general, though, I think the good response is to say only put on really burdensome requirements to platforms of below a certain size. Yeah, thanks. I'm thinking about your discussion about the wide differential incomes of Silicon Valley workers. 
And it seems to me, ultimately, this is just another manifestation of American hyper-capitalism or neoliberalism that needs to be addressed. And I'm not sure if you're aware of a very interesting project in the U.S., but also a global project called the Next System Project. It basically says that the system is broken and we have to conceptualize a new system, entirely new system. So people that contribute to that site are generally coming from a social democratic perspective or an eco-socialist perspective, which is my perspective. So are you familiar with that site? And maybe that has some relevance to what you're talking about today. I think on the one hand, there are a lot of incredibly exciting perspectives that are about sustainability and that are trying to look at the economy as a whole. And I've been doing a little bit of research on the conflict between the degrowth school versus others who think that green growth is not only possible, but morally necessary, et cetera. I think that for the foreseeable future in the U.S., a lot of reform is going to be around the edges in a way because of the sclerotic political system, because particularly in the Senate, we're going to reach a point in 2040 where the half of the population that are in the eight biggest states will have 16 senators, and the half of the population that are in the other states will have 84 senators. And the 84 is tilted very much to the Republican Party, the other 16 is pretty much the Democratic, and the Republican Party really is not that interested in much of what I've had to say today. So I think you're right to say that we need to have broader visions, and I definitely am committed to getting more involved in articulating those broader visions. But I also always want to embrace and to advance some more incremental changes to the existing capitalist order. Catherine Kemp from UNSW. Frank, you expressed some scepticism before about the extent to which individuals can actually bargain with dominant digital platforms on terms of use, including terms of use concerning their personal data privacy. Do you think that there should be some limits on the notice and choice or informed consent approach so that you would put substantive restrictions on what it is that digital platforms could do with people's personal information? Yes, I really appreciate that question. Thank you. And I think that this question about informed consent raises some other really deep fundamental issues about how we conceptualize the nature of rights and what is an area for individual self-defense and what is an area for collective self-defense. And so I want to push the premise of your question even further. So we can imagine a future where we have robust notice and choice that's out there, and let's say only 3% of the population uses it, and we could demographically profile that population and find out that that 3% is by and large mostly in the top quintile of income. And we could also imagine that 97% of the population just says, I'm too busy, too much work, too much childcare, et cetera. I can't be managing my digital dossier and profile online. In that toy model, the informed consent process would in fact act to entrench the relative advantage of the top 3% vis-a-vis the people that don't use it at all. Now, of course, within neoliberalism, there's an argument to say, well, that 97%, they chose not to protect themselves. Whatever comes to them, let them deal with it. In fact, the whole idea of notice and consent, it's not really about giving you control. It's really about creating an opportunity for the state to abandon and blame you for bad things that happen to you. <laughs> so that's why I think your question, Catherine, is really good in the sense of, or at least it's prompting me to think more about what are the terms that no one should be allowed to agree to. 
there's these new ignition interlock devices in the U.S. where you can, for a slightly lower interest rate, agree to have a device placed on your car that will just shut down the car at 12.01 midnight on the day that you first defaulted on a payment. And from a pure law and economics perspective, this is a triumph of rational efficiency. It's wonderful because you get to freely contract for paying less in exchange for taking on that risk. But I think that there's something assaulting of human dignity there. Frank, I might just ask you to touch on something in your work we haven't touched on yet today, at least not explicitly, and that's the critique that you make of the so-called scoring society, the fact that the way in which the internet is structured and works nowadays is so much around rating, reviewing, recommending. Are there concerns there that you would articulate? Yes. One of the things that I think is really deeply worrying to me is an effort to develop a unitary score of somebody across all aspects of life. I think it does make some sense to say, okay, well, this person has a certain score in terms of their creditworthiness or in terms of their being a good employee or other aspects of life. But I think when it's sort of like, this is your citizen score, I really worry about that because I think it places far too much faith in the power of commensuration to flatten and compare different aspects of human experience. What's also really interesting to me is that there's a whole language and literature of scoring in AI now that's totally disconnected from a very old literature critiquing cost-benefit analysis and critiquing commensuration in general in both philosophy and economics. And I think we have to connect those two. I think at a bare minimum, we have to start thinking about these scoring processes as being quasi-juridical, and to the extent they're quasi-juridical, necessarily entailing some of the basic forms of due process, whereby we can contest either the data that's included or the fairness of the scoring algorithm. And the final point I would make is that any algorithm that scores people, I think except when there are severe national security concerns, I think any other one should be public. I think we really have a right to know how we are scored. Well, Frank, you've set yourself a very ambitious task, not just to connect the economists with philosophy, but to connect the engineers with philosophy. So I think we would collectively wish you all the best on that journey, and many of us hope to join you on it. Could you, on behalf of the law school, please thank Frank for his contribution? Well, that was fun, not least having others there to ask some of the questions. But it was also refreshing to hear what Frank calls an oppositional voice in a discourse otherwise dominated by economists. Next on Competition Law, we're joined by Morag Bond and Kate Reader, joint general managers of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission's Digital Platforms Inquiry team, sharing with us the experience of working on such a mammoth and significant project. Until then, you can find links to Frank's writing in the show notes and other resources and links at competitionlaw.com. You know the drill. And if you still prefer reading to listening, don't forget you can also find transcripts of all our episodes on the website. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you next time.